0: What up, AOTA family? Welcome to Passing Period and All of the Above Podcast Extra. As you know, we like to drop these in between our full episodes. Our most recent full episode featured Larry Falazzo, author and educator extraordinaire. And our next full episode will be coming at you maybe in a week or two because this time of year... Actually, it's kind of busy, and it's kind of hard to calendar folks. Those full episodes takes a lot it takes a lot of planning and coordinating and editing and all these other things. But we have some super dope guests lined up for the next few full episodes, so definitely want to make sure you have already subscribed and done all that good stuff that podcasts always ask you to do, so that you don't miss any of that. My name is Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher, and I'm here with Jeff on this bright, sunny weekend where. Both of our basketball teams have been eliminated, so there's no sports going on at all. So there will be no sports talk this time around. (laughs) So we're going to need to talk about what happened. Uh, Jeff, what's good, man? How you doing? (laughs) The
1: Warriors are good. Uh, Hey, hey, hey. hey. And the 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 Nuggets are good. That's that's what's up. Uh, (laughs) I'm good with that. Uh, Yes, I am. uh, In case uh, folks are not basketball fans out there, that means that my Timberwolves got absolutely spanked by uh, Gerardo Munoz's Den- Denver Nuggets. if you if you're listening uh, Gerardo, I am officially also rooting for the nuggets because who wants Kevin Durant and Chris Paul to win No one uh, that's who. So uh, go go nuggets um, and Manuel's uh, beloved uh, light the beam as I have come to learn uh, Sacramento Kings young scrappy, uh what what's what's the hamilton line i'm, I'm young scrappy and something
0: um now i said we didn't need to talk about sports jeff i i okay. we didn't need to bring any of this up. <laughs> it's uh, best when you're dealing with heartbreak and pain it's best just to bury it jeff that's how we was raised you just bury those feelings you just yes. move on man you just thug it out we're gonna rub thug some it dirt out jeff. on
1: it. that's right rub some yeah. dirt on it uh <laughs> that's, that's only led to really healthy outcomes for men especially I think. So Always. We should probably We should probably keep doing that. Uh right?
0: <laughs> yes. Bury those Just drink drillings. away.
1: Drink away the pain and uh hurt other people. Um all right. Let's uh um, let's Let's pivot from toxic masculinity uh, <laughs> uh, yeah man Th- things are good things are good. It's a beautiful weekend uh, i as I think I said before man coming coming back from the from sabbatical i have a I've been back for like a month now and I have such a re-appreciation for the weekend. I want to thank every member of a labor union in like the 1920s or whenever it was <laughs> that uh, <laughs> the the real levers were pulled to create the weekend and not have seven-day work weeks and six-day work weeks uh, just so you could, you know, praise Jesus for your ability to go work another six days after Sunday. Uh, man, weekends are great and weekends should be like three or four days long. So that's my, that's my, uh, non sequitur rant for today.
0: Yeah, I'm on board with that. I love the idea of a four day work week. And actually we've discussed that on this show before. There was some district down in Texas or a couple of districts that shifted or considered four day, uh, work weeks as a way to address the teacher shortage, um, I don't remember. I don't remember off the top of my head how that would help address the shortage, but I'm sure there was a good reason, and we discussed it at length on a full episode several months ago.
1: <laughs> I think it was more so just that. budget. Uh, it was a budget savings issue because um, they they didn't have to do busing. Five and days wasn't it a week.
0: also to entice? Oh, I mean that all makes oh, sense. Maybe, and I think it was maybe. partly to yeah, entice yeah. teachers to come over. Yeah. 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 We should go back and I listen mean. to our own show more often. It's good stuff. <laughs> Hey man, we've, we've done
1: uh, approaching two, 200 episodes, which means we've talked about you know probably 500 stories uh, of some sort on this show, uh, so we're allowed to yeah. forget a couple of things. Um, I, I think a FedEx uh, wonderful delivery person is at my house and about to ring the doorbell, so that's what my doorbell sounds like, everyone.
0: <laughs> well, I didn't hear nothing, so I'm sure it sounds magical. Oh, nice. uh, For sure. So actually, before we get into it for this episode, we do want to mention and give a brief shout out. So last episode, I mentioned that Some former AOTA guests, uh, Chris McNutt and Nick Covington of the Human Restoration Project, are having their second virtual conference um, through the Human Restoration Project this summer at the end of July, July 27th. And I wanna mention for those of y'all who are tuning in right now, all of the above family, if you decide to attend the conference, so go go to the website, check it out, humanrestorationproject.org slash conference. Check out the conference, they got a dope lineup including former AOTA guest, Uh, Jose Wilson. So if you decide that you are interested in attending, you can enter a code at checkout just for being AOTA family. You can enter a code to get 25 bucks off. So AOTA, that's the code. Enter the code AOTA at checkout on the website, and that'll give you $25 off your ticket to attend the, um, the Conference to Restore Humanity. Again, the website is humanrestorationproject.org/conference, and there's other discounts available as well. Um, there's discounts for members of the trans community and and Asian Pacific Islander community. There's they they got a multiple multiplicity of discounts there that stack upon each other. So definitely check that out. And if, after all that, you decide that or realize that, because these are tough economic times, if you realize that you would love to attend this super dope conference, but still, even with those discounts, even with the AOTA code, it's still a bit much uh, for your pocket, they do have some scholarship opportunities available through their sponsors, um, and you can find out that on their website as well. All right, humanrestorationproject.org conference. Shout out to Chris McNutt and Nick Cummington. Well then, Jeff, we're here to talk about education and the many issues that we have in education in this effort to build a um, more humanizing, more effective school system for everybody. And Jeff, this um, for some schools, I noticed a lot of teachers uh, posting recently about testing and this being the week that they, or this previous week being the week of state testing and all that. Now, my school did it a few weeks ago, so, um, so that's behind us. But I know that you are truly, truly one of the really flat, like outstanding flag bearers of testing and especially high stakes testing. Um, and, you know, we have a story today that we wanted to talk about since your wheelhouse uh, when you're a classroom teacher was social studies. And we have some updates on test scores for students in U.S. history and students in civics. And I'm sure that since it's about testing, and since it's about test scores, um, that it's all good news, all stuff to celebrate, Jeff. So let's start with that before we get into like the meteor story for for today. So Jeff, what, what test scores dropped this week?
1: <laughs> uh, all the test scores dropped it. Don't you know, Manuel, the kids are, are all failures and they're failures because the teachers are lazy and the principals are irresponsible. So we should privatize all the public schools, and then we would be free. So that's my take today. Uh, I think we can end there. That's logical. Now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay. So we do. I mean, it's an interesting story uh, that's out on, on several levels. Uh, on maybe on one level of like an interesting comparison with the clickbaity headline information versus what the actual data says. And also interesting because, you know, I'm not a person who's like standardized tests have no function. And in fact, I think the NAEP is probably one of the more uh, pure uh, reasons to have a standardized assessment, which is to say we have tens of thousands of schools across the country how do we make any kind of comparison and I should say we have 50 different states with 50 different sets of rules for schools and then within those states we have varying sets of rules about who does, like does the state or do counties or districts or other you know other types of government entities make the rules for even smaller subsets of those schools and so we need some way to say, like, I don't know, how's it going? Are we doing well in some areas and poor in other areas? And I get it's, it's you know, it's a brute force instrument um, with a checkered history at best. And uh, I don't think that means we shouldn't talk about it personally. So uh, the NAEP, the National As- uh, Assessment of Educational Progress, uh, which is given out, you know, on a cycle of four years, Um, to uh, students in a few different grades uh, over the course of their K-12 trajectory, uh, released eighth grade uh, scores uh, from 2022 uh, recently, this past week. And um, there's a headline, which I'm going to read from uh, the good people at EdSource, which says, latest national test results underscore declining knowledge of U.S. history and civics. Could be just one factor for nationwide 8th grade NAEP scores. Uh, this is written by John Fensterwald uh, from EdSource. And, you know, it's I get it. It's a headline. Like, you want folks to, to click on it. So I, I understand. I respect the, the clickbait game. Um, and also... It's interesting that like two inches down on the site is a large graph that's titled 2022 Civics, larger percentage of students below NAEP, basic compared to 2018. And that graph is like, first of all, there's barely been a change. And I I appreciate that it is a significant, significant, ah, wow, statistically significant change. It's barely a change at all, right? Um, and the as I would look at this data, they show the 1998 data, which is the first year that this civics test was given, the 2018 data, which is the last time it was given, and now the, the current 2022 data. And here's what it shows, folks. 2% of students scored advanced. 20% of students scored proficient this year, okay? Or, I mean, I should say in 2022. In uh, 2018, 2% of students scored advanced and 21% of students scored proficient. So, obviously, there's been a drop, and that drop is actually, I'm going to presume, a little bit less than one percentage point worth of students because there's some rounding uh, errors that are clearly present in this graph, like the total adds up to more than 100. So, you know, it's probably like, let's, you know, 0.8 or 0.75 or 0.9 or something percent. Of, of the student population. Now, when you take 1% or a little less than 1% of the 8th graders in America, that's, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of kids, right? So I'm not pretending as though that that doesn't mean something potentially for a large group of kids. But, you know, I think it shows us that like this, this data should not have us say the sky is falling, Okay, And if we are feeling like this data tells us the sky is falling, what it's really telling us is the sky done been fell (laughs) since 1998, and like... Very scientific. Yeah, that's that's a clinical term, the sky done fell. (laughs) Uh, You know, like, and I'm not saying we should celebrate in our perpetual mediocrity or whatever you would like to, to frame this as, but like... I think sometimes we get this data and we're like, oh, my God, the schools are failing. We have, you know, blame the teachers, this and that, this and that. I think the story is we didn't make any progress on this assessment over the last 20 plus years, now approaching 25 years. And uh, that's probably a reflection of a number of things, right? Um, Especially when we think about civics education, right? Right. Um, so there's an extent to which the curriculum has been narrowed in our public schools because of the effects of No Child Left Behind, um, and those policies didn't produce, in terms of like uh, the, the the sort of thoughts that we had about like we're going to double down on reading and math and everything's going to be great. Nope, turns out that doesn't actually produce results. At least by this assessment, which the folks who love that type of agenda I think tend to prioritize as being like the the pinnacle of standardized tests. Um, so it gives us some insight into the lack of impact of our national ed reform agenda uh, in, in some ways. It gives us, I think, some information about the fact that some of the effects of the pandemic, uh, which impacted you know, students in a variety of ways and schools and educators in a variety of ways, and also which hurt, and we're talking about eighth graders, so these are kids who are in fifth grade uh, in the uh, during the pandemic, right, um, and and that had their sort of end of elementary school and and middle school career heavily impacted by those conditions. I would be willing to bet that there's a large number of those kids who were still, you know, who entered the pandemic a year or two or three below grade level in reading, and did not make adequate progress on their development of their, you know, sort of fundamental reading skills, and now they're taking this test with all kinds of complex language and complex texts and that sort of thing to to grapple with. So I think it's probably revealing about where we are with just literacy um, as a country right now, generally. Um, And so I think it, you know, it's interesting in that regard. I, I think the very clear thing everyone needs to do when reading about this is, like, understand this doesn't mean the sky is falling. It doesn't mean your teachers are lazy and hate kids. It doesn't mean we should end school, public school, or any of the kind of stuff that, that you know, people that have those agendas are going to claim it says. Um, I think there's a much more nuanced conversation that could be had about this. But what, what's your take, Manuel, besides the fact that um, you and your colleagues obviously got to step your game
0: up? Yeah, no, that's obviously clear. Um... Definitely got to step our game up because, I mean, our students are failing, Jeff. They're failing big time, bigly failing. So you mentioned <laughs> uh, towards the end of that, um, there's room for or need for nuanced conversation around this. And I don't know I don't know if you're new to this world that we live in here, Jeff, but nuanced conversation <laughs> is not really our strong suit, um, generally speaking, in education spaces and political spaces and social spaces. A nuanced conversation uh, very much um, this, this would be a great place for it. Um, but yeah, that's not really our strong suit, Jeff. So yeah, the, the scores, I mean, y'all know me as far as test scores go, I, I, you know, take it with a grain of salt, generally, generally speaking. And as a social science teacher, I mean, actually, no, just as, as a member of our society, I think I would have been more shocked. Like if the headlines were like scores were at all time high, like if the scores actually went up, I would have been more shocked by that because like looking at, at the I'm, I'm looking at a chalk piece uh chalk beat piece um about these scores and it looks like 2014 was like quote unquote peak even though those scores are pretty low too but like 2014 was kind of a peak and everything's been down since then but like why 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 would it not be down i mean think of everything that happened since 2014 and you you spelled out some of it um just now jeff but like especially in the realm of civics like Twenty fourteen. That's pre pre Trump era, that's pre capital insurrection, that's pre you know fake news, quote unquote being like a phrase that's like just common now. It's it's like it'd be shocking if these scores went up. And not just because like we live in a society now where even the just the notion of civics and what it even means, like we wouldn't even be able to come close to any kind of agreement. Nationally, about what civics is supposed to mean because everything that I was taught that it was supposed to mean, like growing up and when I was in school and all that stuff, like about voting and about um, uh, agreeing to disagree and, you know, all these basic principles, like that's not... That's not our reality now. Like all, my teachers all taught me about the importance of voting and all that stuff, and we just witnessed an election where like a whole swaths of our country don't believe the numbers that came out and don't uh, don't believe that vote was uh, was authentic. And there are some people who even think like you know somehow, some way, some magical, mysterious way, like President Trump is still president somehow. So it's like okay, like it'd be shocking if these scores went up because these are children who have you know their the majority of their life has been in this during this new reality where um, everything is upside down and nothing you know left is right and all that stuff so um, so I would I would have been shocked and you, you could imagine the teachers in those classrooms many of those teachers probably are like really nervous about how they teach stuff and how they broach stuff because this that whatever so like you know those those students I mean the test scores are gonna clearly reflect I think, um, just a general degradation of civics in our country, not just civics instruction, but civics period. So there's that. I imagine if we were to test the adults somehow, I would imagine the adults' scores will be lower than ever also um, for those same reasons. And then of course you add the pandemic, you add what you said about um, No Child Left Behind and how so many schools have deprioritized history and civics. And especially now in the learning loss conversation, so much of it is around reading and literacy and mathematics. So, you know, you, you're going to get what, what, I mean, I, to me, this is predictable and this this makes sense. Um, I The Chalkbeat article about this, though, it does have like a whole section about um, all the bands that we've been talking about, the book bands, the bands on so-called critical race theory and uh, so, uh, bands on teaching about um, really anything, humanizing about any marginalized group. And I, I really don't think that would be the reason for these scores uh, being where they're at now because I, I haven't looked at the items on the assessment for for NAEP when it comes to U.S. history and civics, but I doubt they're really asking about critical stuff. I doubt the uh, teachers even before these bans were teaching about like the Black Freedom struggle and we're teaching about COINTELPRO Pro and stuff like that. And the tests aren't probably asking about that either. So like I don't really think the um, the wave of bans is the reason for this, but I definitely think that it'll just contribute to future declines in these scores for sure so i don't know man it's, it's just one of those things like what does this even mean anymore when we live in a world where just this week like more info came out about supreme court justice um just outright just outright unethical um dealings with a billionaire influencer on the republican side of things paying for his nephew's boarding school and all that and like that stuff used to be the stuff of major scandals back in our day and now it's just like eh, it's just another headline and we just move on we got a freaking congressman santos who like just is a liar about literally everything we don't even know who this dude is and he's still in congress like he's still there um after having lied about every freaking thing like it's just like what is what does civics even mean anymore man so so i'm not surprised by these scores i am in the um on the side of those educators out there who know that when it comes to teaching about civics and history and um, social issues, like it's so much more than really the technical side of it in terms of like the importance of voting, the importance of knowing about, you know, um, the how your legislator, legislature is set up and committees and all that. It's like we got the big questions that we're grappling with now in terms of like just all that's happening to our society around us. Uh, The big questions about like the degradation of democracy and the attacks on our freedom, the attacks on our humanity and shout out to all those teachers out there who, especially those who um, serve marginalized populations and and are, are there to help those students develop a critical consciousness around what's happening around them and around our society and also those um educators of of students of all backgrounds that are prioritizing a humanizing lens of of everyone a humanizing lens of people of color humanizing lens of of queer folks and folks just just all communities as we hopefully together unite for a better tomorrow and a better world because uh, i think these scores reflect where we got we got problems jeff I don't know, man. I don't know if you noticed, man. We just we got problems and these scores maybe reflect that. But again, at the end of the day, like you said, it's not like the test scores have plummeted. They're just bad. They've been bad forever. So what'd you say? The, the sky done fell? The, yeah, the sky done <laughs> fell way back in the 90s when it comes to these scores. So, So there's that.
1: Yeah, uh, Manuel. Well, as you were talking, um, you made me remember that on the actual uh, the the NAEP, um, well, actually it's the nationsreportcard.gov site, where they give highlights of the civics exam results. There are actually links to some sample items from the assessment and okay. sample items that demonstrate, um, like, if you got this right you would be at this particular level, like a basic, proficient, or advanced. So I just happened, as you were talking, to click on the proficient, right? Since we always talk about right. we want students to be proficient. The sample proficient question, Madwell. This is this is so perfect, I can't, I can't help but smile. <laughs> the question is, uh, the data shown below are from a presidential election. And I, th- I'm just citing from memory here, but I would swear with names removed, this is the data from the 2016 Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump <laughs> election, right? Where, like, Hillary okay. got more popular votes but lost the electoral college and, you know, and lost the presidency, right, to, to Trump. And the and so it gives, like, Republican candidate A. They won this many states, this many electoral votes, this much popular vote, this much percentage. Okay? Um, and it gives Republican, Democrat, green uh, candidate The question then is, according to the data, which of the following statements about the election is true? (laughs) Uh, And then it says, candidate A became president because he won the most states. Candidate A became president because he won the Electoral College vote. Candidate B became president because he, interesting, won the popular vote. Candidate B became president because he won the vote in the District of Columbia. And the the correct answer is B, that the candidate here, who's ostensibly Donald Trump, became president because he won the Electoral College vote. Uh, So fascinating that that question, the question over which literally the entirety of the Republican Party (laughs) believes is a lie, (laughs) and has spent the entire period of history since then screaming on... Channels like Fox and One America and all this sort of stuff and, and filling social media with uh misinformation about this right um, that <laughs> that as you said uh it's not at all surprising that eighth graders will be like. I don't know what the right answer to this, to this question is. Candidate I mean, A be, became president because God wanted it or whatever is the, you know, is the right answer. Where's the answer that says, you know, the the uh, election was rigged uh, or whatever. So,
0: yeah, I... I well, I, 2016 wasn't rigged, Jeff. 2016 was an attempted rigging. Remember, they were chucking uh, busloads of uh quote unquote illegal aliens to the polling uh stations in New Hampshire yes. and that's why Hillary won the popular vote but she so didn't actually win the presidency thankfully they tried to that's Jeff right. it was 2020 where they succeeded in that Jeff come that's on that's right catch up, Car- man,
1: catch up. caravans of of quote unquote illegals uh yes of course and yes. and made up made up black people uh from from college campuses uh being uppity um yeah i so <laughs> it yeah. There's so many so many layers to this, man. It's crazy. Um yeah, I it is it, as you said, it is not surprising that in a country where uh the public discourse about government and civics has been so absolutely um, overwhelmed by extremely, you know, far right wing uh anti-democratic uh, discussion, and policies, etc. It's not surprising that in that context there would potentially be a slip. It's maybe surprising that, the, like you said, the, that the data didn't go down much more given the amount of insanity that, that has been pumped into everyone's social media feeds and nightly newscasts and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, it is, yeah. Uh, you know, should this data be better? Absolutely. Are we doing the kinds of things policy-wise right now in education to make it better? <clears throat> Excuse me. Honestly, I don't think so. Um, I, I And I think we are at some, we're at a little bit of a, of, of a precipice right now, uh, a danger point of sliding back into some of the, the like obvious failed policies of the No Child Left Behind era that that we should not repeat, right? The narrowing of the curriculum, the you know, the sort of punitive test score-based discourse as being the entirety of the discussion about what success is in education, and um, and that is not good for anyone in the equation. I mean, it's, maybe it's good for politicians, you know, and and folks in media who have sort of easier stuff to write about or talk about. Uh, but it's not good for the the actual institution of school,
0: um, I would argue. It's not good for children. Definitely not good for children. Um, very little that's happening in the world of education and uh, certainly our political world it seems to be good for children uh, at this point in terms of just, I mean, all of the things. The tax on curriculum, the tax on teachers, the the push for um privatizing the school system and then, you know, everything that's happening within our democratic system, uh, so called democratic system. Yeah, it's 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 all trending in a in a not great direction. But I mean that's that's why we're here on this show and in the spaces that, that we operate, because we are um far from like It's far from hopeless. Like, you know, there's definitely a lot of work to do, but a lot of good work that is happening out there. Um, A lot of folks in our all of the above family out there are doing a lot of good work in their spaces to to try to um, (laughs) rectify some of this. So shout out to everybody out there who's when when it comes up in the meeting or when it comes up at the um, wherever you happen to operate that. Oh, we need to. Yeah speed up our math instruction and we got to catch up and we got to double down on this and you're you're the one who raises your hand and points out that like stuff like that has been tried during the no child left behind era and it didn't work and that's not the not the way to address the so called so called learning loss um you know shout out to you for for being that voice because i think a lot of things on the surface they look like easy solutions like okay our scores in this are really bad and students missed so much uh time uh during the pandemic on uh, math instruction or english instruction so we just gotta like have more time and have add days. We got to add days to the school calendar. We got to add this. We got to add that. Um, it looks like you know logically it seems like that would add up, right? Like okay, they missed this much time, so we got to add that much more time now to catch folks up. But what are we catching up to? Like what is? What are we even catching up to? And and our whole history of education reform, especially in the two thousands, shows that like that don't really work. It might make sense in your head, like it seems like it would be logical, but it actually doesn't play out that way. So, shout out to everybody out there who's advocating for uh, more humanizing views of what our education system can and should look like. Well, Jeff, we're gonna move on now because I know test scores are your thing, but um, we have we have money to talk about. You know, I'm a teacher. I'm trying to get rich, so I want to talk about the story about paying teachers more. I'll just leave it at that, Jeff. Paying teachers more. What we got? What we got?
1: I think we can end this episode real quick once again, which is pay the damn teachers, man. (laughs) Yeah, it's a very simple, (laughs) simple conversation. Um, No, we we so it is in many ways a simple conversation, but also that is just one piece. I would argue of the larger conversation about how do we, with our dollars, fund a system equitably. So that it produces outcomes that are the kinds of outcomes that I, I at least I would hope that we that we can agree that we collectively aspire to. Um, and so this conversation was inspired by a an article that appeared in Cal Matters um, that is talking about the uh, the sort of challenges with, with teacher turnover, and surfacing, the article really focuses on these sort of profiles of three teachers who have uh, a combined 80 years of experience working in high poverty schools um, across uh, here in the state of California. And we aren't actually gonna dip into the profiles, shout out to these uh, wonderful educators, but the beginning of the article really talks about uh, the, the issue around teacher pay, um, which we want to go a little bit deeper on. So, you know, the, I think we have long talked about, heard about, debated the idea that should, we, we know that we have schools that are hard to staff. We know that we have schools with high degrees of turnover. We know that we have schools where there are high concentrations of quote unquote you know, uh, Title I kids, students whose families qualify for free and reduced-price lunch, and that we have huge variance in that across the country because our schools are deeply segregated uh, in this country, primarily um, along lines of, of class and race. And, of course, often those lines are the same lines or, <laughs> you know, they they replicate uh, relationships in, in a predictable way. And This article mentions the idea that, like, you know, to incentivize teachers to both work in and stay working in um, high poverty schools or schools where we know there's lots of, you know, marginalized youth or serving marginalized communities, um, that you know, in our capitalist economy, this is sort of the like the obvious thing, right? Like, if Google wants the best engineers or has the most difficult cryptology problem to solve or whatever, they're gonna offer millions and millions of dollars, right? Or, you know, they're gonna offer a lot of money to incentivize people to solve problems, create solutions, attract and retain talent, outbid their competitors, right? And that that is the quote unquote natural order of things in a capitalist economy. Now we also know that in a capitalist economy that actually only functions for the the sort of well-to-do <laughs> in society and that for regular folks the exact opposite is true that there's you know virtually no gain in pay without prolonged organized struggle um, and that it has pay has no relationship largely to the value of one's actual work, nor does it have any real relationship to the the like abundance or scarcity of uh, of labor. Um, in fact, an abundance of labor could you know could hurt your wages, but a short uh, you know a, a short supply of labor absolutely does not result in in any meaningful increase in wages, as as most Americans intimately understand in their checkbooks. Um, so. This issue for, uh, for teachers right, um, is a fascinating one, Manuel, because we have very obviously some work being done by teachers who are teaching the same content, the same grade level, you know, in the same context uh, in that sense. And their job is just a harder job than other folks who in theory are doing the same job in a, in a different uh, sort of context. And it would seem that, that raising the pay for the folks who are doing the harder work would make sense and be not only the right thing to do, but also uh, an effective thing to do. And that is sort of an easy concept to grasp and also isn't quite as simple as, <laughs> as it sounds. There are big questions about, is that actually the right thing to do? I would say most, without being a scholar on this issue, uh, I think it's fair to say most unions have been opposed, most teacher unions have been opposed to this type of um, compensation situation um, in, in all but ways that you know maybe are sort of temporary or like a one-time bonus or small increments. Um, But, you know, unions are now here negotiating for, like, separate salary schedules for the high-needs schools to have teachers paid a lot more. Um, And, in fact, generally tend to oppose those initiatives. Um, And you and I have both experienced some version of these in the past and can say that, like, the versions we experienced, at least, certainly did not move the needle on, like, solving this problem, right, which is high need schools, schools uh, that are hard to staff, like getting out of that situation and becoming like glorious, stable schools because of a policy that involved some incentive, incentive with pay. Um, so and yet, I think we differ a little bit on this issue because I think it's a great idea and that we just haven't gone far enough. Uh, <laughs> and my sense is you 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 know have had a bit of a different experience experience with it. So before I get into my uh, get on my soapbox here, I'm curious to to hear your perspective first, Manuel, as someone who has has experienced a version of this and is maybe one of the few people who experienced it and is still at your school, still doing the good work, unlike.
0: Some other folks who, you know, left the profession or moved to the suburbs or, you know, whatever. Yeah, no, most definitely. I think this, going back to our... Last conversation earlier this episode, um, this is one of those things that on the surface, it looks like it would make sense. It looks like it'd be a good idea. So uh, teachers who serve in high poverty schools, it, the, the work is a lot harder. So why not pay them more? And in that way, you could reduce turnover and, and maybe encourage some of the, quote unquote, more effective teachers to want to teach there and want to go there. On the surface, it, it adds up. It seems logical, but it's another thing where in reality, it doesn't add up. And, you know, the research on this is mixed for a reason, because being a teacher who has worked in high poverty schools for a very long time, I could tell you like the folks that that leave the folks that um, either choose to leave or just simply don't make it like it's it doesn't come down to the pay. So um, the school I teach at when it was reconstituted in 2008, after years of. Uh, scandal after scandal, and low test scores—all this stuff. Reconstituted the whole school. Part of the um, part of the process was trying to encourage encourage uh, high quality teachers uh, to come to the school to teach. And the district, our district, put out a bonus for teachers across the district who wanted to transfer to. My school site, uh, five thousand a year for three years, which I, I you know, in twenty twenty three, that doesn't maybe that doesn't seem like a whole lot, but in two thousand eight, when the economy was collapsing and everything was so bad, um, especially for a younger teacher like myself at the time, like five thousand a year, bonus on top of just like the regular salary, yo, that's sounded great, but like not a single teacher, like not one, not one teacher across our whole school district took the district up on that offer and transferred over to to where I work for that for that bonus and I took the job there because at the time there was no other public high school around uh, the area that was that was hiring um at least you know traditional public schools I wanted to work in a traditional public school I didn't want to uh, work at a charter for a variety of reasons whatever so so the 5000 had nothing to do with me choosing to work there but I took it hell yeah and I remember our first few years like a ton of teachers came and went. The turnover was crazy. We had so many Teach for America teachers. We had so many folks come in and just like not make it and get ran out. We had so many folks who came in and it was just like the work, it was just too much. And they took jobs elsewhere. That 5,000 didn't seem to make a difference. And, you know, yeah, maybe if it was 10,000 a year or 15,000 a year, maybe it would have enticed some folks to stay. But I think it would have enticed probably the wrong folks to stay because like, if if it wasn't working for you, if you weren't feeling good about being there, you shouldn't be there. Regardless of what the money was, it's not like we were losing good, high quality folks who really wanted to be there. But you know, this other district was paying so much more. Now we were losing folks to districts that were paying less because they didn't have the bonus. And it's just like at, at a time when there was so much, uh, so many people getting laid off, so many pink slips, and this and that, uh, folks were still taking the chance to like dip back, jump back into the um, into the job pool because like. They, they, it wasn't working at our high poverty, high need school. So, so that's one reason why. When I think, when I look at this, it makes sense why a union would be against it because it doesn't really work out. It doesn't change the fundamental conditions, which is pointed out by um, I forget her name, but um, a representative from the uh, California Teachers Association pointed out that like it doesn't really change the reasons for uh, teachers wanting to leave those schools. And yeah, I think about it, you know, let's say there was a hundred of us at the time. I I don't know the number of staff at the time, but you know, a hundred of us, 5,000 extra a year, that's 500,000 a year. I think we probably, the conditions that we experienced, if that 500,000 were used to hire whatever, 10 more teachers, instead of having that $5,000 bonus, having 10 more teachers on campus to help lower the class sizes or just to help address, you know, just all the struggle, all the, everything... That probably would have made a huge difference, or a more significant difference in our experiences than the five thousand extra uh, stipend. So, so yeah, you know, I, I this is just one of those ideas that I think looks really great on paper. Um, conceptually, it makes sense, but in reality, uh, nah, man. I I think the teachers that end up staying at high poverty schools, and some of them are profiled in this piece. Um, it doesn't seem to be about the money. Like I stayed after that money ran out. It's not like oh that five thousand is done. Let me find somewhere else to stay. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean that, that's that's my view of it. It's another idea that sounds great, but it doesn't really pan out. And I don't think it would lead to any kind of lasting change. So if it doesn't lead to lasting change, uh, if anything, it just causes problems in terms of um, division and. And all the issues that come with, well, you're getting paid extra to be at this school, so why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? Like, it could definitely be misused um, if it were, like, broad policy that teachers get paid more at these high-poverty schools. And it kind of, like, excuses all the extra work that they have to do and all the extra um, labor that, that takes place. So those are my thoughts, Jeff. Yeah. But you're for it. Yeah, I... I Went for it. I
1: so first of all I, I appreciate that perspective, Manuel. And I and I think it is it is real in the sense that I experienced a version of what you're talking about. Mine was not at a at like a, you know, sort of post reconstitution incentive program. It was with a program that I uh was just Googling here and still exists in New York State, which I'm I'm happy to see, although I think it actually pays less now than it did when I got it twenty years ago. So I'm that's a little sad, mm. but um, but nonetheless, it exists. It's a program called Teachers of Tomorrow, and as I rec- as I remember it, my memory might be a little bit fuzzy. When I was in the program, I think now it's more focused, in particular, on um, harder to staff uh, subject areas like uh, science and math and um, bilingual ed, or you know, uh, teachers of ESL or that sort of thing. Um, so. Uh, as I recall it, it was for intended for people who were working in the the large urban districts of New York State. So, like Buffalo, um, uh, Rochester, uh, Albany, New York City, Yonkers. I think right there's like five big the five biggest districts in the state. And um, it was intended to both incentivize f- folks to come in and to stay. So, like, if you—I believe it was four thousand dollars a year at the time, and I think it's a little less now. But um, you know, you, if you taught, if you came in and taught for a year, you got that four thousand. If you went back for another year, you got another four thousand, right? And and so it shifted from incentive to retention, right? Um, and so, like you, I would have taught there anyways. And also, it was a very real help because I was dead broke coming out of grad school with a giant pile of loans. And I needed that money. Um, And it did. It it was like materially helpful to me. Um, And at the same time, I would have probably stayed where I taught and in uh, for the length of time that I taught, regardless of this. Right. To me, though, my takeaway from that isn't that this concept can't work because we see so many examples of it working in other professions. I think the reality is for all but the most novice teachers, $4,000 or $5,000 is not enough to change one's whole life. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, And I guess I'm saying this in in our context, right? Maybe in like... You know rural Mississippi, where folks are making twenty one thousand dollars a year or something like that like it might be a different equation, right but in our type of context where there's at least like a living wage being paid to teachers the um, you know the the other industries that are doing this they're not offering five thousand dollars a year they're offering <clears throat> fifteen twenty thirty fifty thousand dollars a year to incentivize people to make moves. And when you think about that as a percentage fraction of an overall salary, right? If someone's making $200,000 a year as some kind of programmer at a IT company or whatever, they're not getting offered a $5,000 bonus to, you know, to, to like go do the hardest yeah, for work, sure. right? They're getting like twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars right? So we're talking about like 10, 20% increments of their, of their salary. And so... You know, I think there's there is, in my mind, a very real like we didn't actually try how this is supposed to work. And I get that with with the volume of staff that we're talking about in teaching, the numbers get big in terms of what gets reported in the media pretty quickly. And we're like, oh, this, you know, this district is going to spend twenty five million dollars on teacher salaries and teachers don't even have to do any more work or whatever, whatever, you know, kind of clickbait can be can be said about that. But we should be talking about huge bonuses (laughs) for for staff uh, to take jobs in those contexts and to stay in those jobs. And I won't stop there, Manuel, because really what this should be is part of a larger conversation about funding equity and the actual cost. And we've talked about this, you know, probably not in a few years on the show. But I compare it to some of the very early legal strategy in the civil rights movement, which started in terms of educational equity, which in many ways started with graduate schools uh, in states like Texas and states like Mississippi, right, where there was only one law school. And, you know, they challenged the concept of separate but equal in those contexts, right? And and said, like either what you're gonna do is admit the black folks to the law school or you're gonna have to build a separate equal law school, which is gonna cost however much it would have cost in you know 1948 or whatever to do that, right? And you have to make inequity expensive. In a in a, in a capitalist system like this, if you're going to work within the levers of power that exist to, to force change, and so I think we also need to think about this as like a how do how do we raise the cost or reveal the true cost of the inequitable system we've chosen to have, because what we should be doing is funding these high need schools where these three wonderful teachers are working at, where you work at, the kind of schools that I've w- worked at in my career and continue to work with. We should be funding those schools at three or four times the level that we are funding other schools. And it doesn't mean cut those other schools' budgets. It means we have beautiful facilities and nice everything in the suburbs. Great. We want that times three in the hood. Because that's what it's going to take to pay teachers what they should be paid to do the actual work at a high quality level. Same thing with counselors, same thing with principals, same thing with school, campus aides, everybody, right? We also need more teachers. We should have additional hiring over capacity. We should have reduced class sizes. We know it's predictable that we're going to have mid-year vacancies or, you know, long-term subs uh, that are potentially working in these schools. And we don't want that because that exacerbates the inequities that we know are baked into the system. So we're going to overhire at these schools. We're going to give them priority hiring earlier on in the hiring cycle than other schools get. We're going to give them the ability to create better working conditions, more TAs, more you know of the materials, resources, training, all of that stuff, right? That's this should be one piece, the teacher pay, the educator pay, should be one piece in a larger equity funding agenda. And, you know, I know I'm talking about things here that, that at least in our current political climate have a less than 0% chance of, of becoming real without some very serious and militant political organizing to make them happen. But I, I think this is, to me, my response to this issue is we haven't gone far enough. And that's why it didn't work. Tinkering around the margins isn't going to work. It's going to help some individuals like it helped you and it helped me. It might bring in a few more TFA candidates or you know, or something like that. But it's not um, going to significantly move the needle on on like the longer term equity impact of this that we hope to see.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you make a lot of great points there that I agree with for sure. I, I think my, my my view of it is I don't. Trust that we have enough really solid, really um, justice-oriented leaders in education for that vision to come together and play out. I think there's a, a, enough. Um, we have enough policymakers and researchers in the more um, harmful space to to get in the way of that and make it. Oh, let me. Let me back up here. So in these discussions about paying more for teachers in high poverty schools, um, you know, in the piece that we're we're pulling from here, Eric Hanushek is is quoted and in, in has there's a whole chunk about his view of it. And I remember his name from No Child Left Behind Era in this uh, this discussion about value added test scores and and evaluating teachers based on. Test scores, but based on a value added measure. And like his was the name that kept ringing out. And in this piece, he says that districts should be able to use test score data to send their most effective teachers to the highest poverty schools with more pay, which is, is super, super, super reliant on test score data. So it's like, you know, I, I don't think we have enough Jeff Garrett's in the world um, to take the lead on this. I think we have several Eric Hanushek minded folks out there who would say, well, now that we have the policy in place to pay more for teachers at high, higher poverty schools, we got to make sure those teachers are effective because they're getting paid more. And if they're not the effective teachers, that's inefficient. That's a waste of money. So, you know, here he is saying like the the quote unquote highly effective teachers should be um, enticed to move there with more pay. So it's like, okay, so what's going to happen? You're going to take a teacher from the suburbs whose value added, whatever test scores show that they're highly effective and you're going to give them all this extra money to go to this high poverty school and then what? Like, there, those test scores are going to come back and show. Oh, maybe this teacher isn't so freaking great. Maybe it was just like all the conditions were right for them to succeed and for them to focus on um, whatever the content and the test and this and that. And now they're in this other situation, and suddenly they're not highly effective anymore. And now what? They get booted back to the suburbs. Like, they're not going to get booted back. Um, it's just it's. There's so much potential for this to be weaponized and for this to be a problem, and this be used by administrators to put more on their teachers because their teachers are getting paid more this could be used by school districts and everyone out there to blame teachers you're getting paid all this money and your test scores still aren't moving you're doing all this so much was invested you said you wanted uh, more pay and you get more pay now look it's still not working this and that like i could see it being weaponized and misused like way more easily than i can envision it um Following the the vision that you laid out, which is a beautiful vision, which I would be 100% on board with. I just don't trust these folks. I don't trust enough folks out there. And I think that's why when the union, the California Teachers Association, comes out and says, yeah, this this ain't it. Like we, the salary schedules that we have help fight against the types of biases that would be there if you just allowed a district... Or administration to like pay teachers differently based on whatever um, measures they want to use for effectiveness. Yeah, like I don't, I don't, I don't trust that there's enough good folks for that to work out well. Therefore, I would rather see much more investment and in attention paid towards addressing the conditions in these schools rather than just like, okay, here's some quote-unquote combat pay. Like I remember that's the. I remember in the reform era, the no child left behind era like that, that was the phrase that kept coming out like, oh, we're talking about combat pay here. We're talking about you're going into a hellscape of a school that's under resourced and got all these problems. So you're going to get paid a little extra for that and good luck and hope it works out. And I think research shows that, especially for uh, teachers of color, especially for um, teachers from marginalized backgrounds, like so much of the struggle and so much of the decision to stay or not stay boils down to like not so much the actual pay, but all the other things, the conditions, how much of our own heart and soul goes into trying to uh, support our young people and through all of the traumas of living in poverty, through all the traumas of just uh, a racist society that we uh, navigate and like yeah, man, I, I, I just don't think there's enough Jeff Garrett's in the world for this to work out in a way that that leads to um, any any kind of measure of educational justice. So I will still stand on the side of like, let's teach this pay teachers more, period, across the board. Let's invest in the teaching profession across the board and let's invest in helping those high poverty schools have more resources. So uh, I definitely the union favors the community schools model. And we had uh, Emily Grujava on the show before uh, speaking a bit about community schools and, and the importance of something like a, um, a robust wellness center and, and resources uh, working in tandem in partnership with the community. Like that's the type of investment I'd rather see, like put money into that, make sure all the teachers are paid, um, paid well, because hell, like obviously, but also uh, let's invest in making sure that these high poverty schools aren't the the struggle that they are like this do something about the actual conditions versus just paying a bonus to you know so-called high high quality teachers to to move over there which i think is the more likely outcome um than like what what you laid out earlier so maybe it's my distrust in the system jeff my distrust yeah i don't like
1: it I think so. I think so. To be honest, and and I don't say that as a diss. I say that as like the your distrust of the system is a reputation that has largely been earned by the system. Uh, so I get it. And what I would say is, to me, as I hear you talking, it reflects like a very scarcity mindset, um, in the sense that we don't. We are talking about well, either. We can pay all the teachers uh, what they should be paid, given their level of education and the importance of their work in society and that kind of thing, or we can like pay some of the teachers "quote unquote" combat pay. Now, first of all, I remember the combat pay talk when I was a uh, you know when we were both younger in our profession as well, which is racist and crazy and like riddled with problems. Yeah. So that is also an issue with it, with this type of policy <laughs> yeah. that like needs to be addressed. I get it, um, but but. Assuming for a second that we can do a better job uh, rhetorically and logistically uh, this time around, I, you know, I think there's a different way we need to think about it, which is we're the richest country in the world. As Bettina Love shared at the early stages of the pandemic, where all of a sudden we had enough money for Chromebooks for all the kids. When before that, being a one-to-one Chromebook school is like a special thing that you could only do if Bill Gates or Shack gave you a grant or something, for, you know, for your school. As she said, like they played their hand, and like there's money to do whatever the hell we want to do. And I'm like, there is money for this to pay all the teachers well and to incentivize people who are both good at the job, right for the context and effective in the work to stay, to come to and stay at the highest need schools. And I think we, we, I understand why we think the way we do, because the system has taught us that. And also we can think differently because the system has also taught us that when, like, <laughs> if we're paying attention, right? They're like, there's money for them to, to do whatever testing regime they want to do. There's money to do one-to-one Chromebooks as soon as the pandemic hits, and we need to get all the kids online at home. There's money to do this, too. And, uh, and, and so I think that we, we can maybe shift our paradigm of thought a little bit to, to open up some new possibilities for, for what this can actually can actually look like Manuel. Um, before we, before we wrap up here, I did just want to say quickly. I think I forgot to mention the authors of this piece on Cal Matters at the beginning, so I do want to uh, make sure I do that in, in case I forgot. Um, so it's it's like a two-part piece, uh, which is pretty fascinating. We'll put the link below. It's, it's in Cal Matters. It's written by Joe Hong and Erica Yi, um, and uh, so I encourage folks to check it out. Fascinating set of articles.
0: Yeah, for sure, for sure. All right. Lots left. Lots left to uh, discuss around this issue and all these issues, because this is a very complex landscape that we are trying, trying to um, navigate and trying to improve for the sake of all of our students, uh, most especially those who have been historically marginalized in so many different ways. So, yeah, man, definitely chime in, folks. Let us know what 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 your thoughts are. I, I think myself, the the. Um, perhaps, perhaps it's fair to say a little more pessimistic uh, one on this particular issue right here. Hey man, let me know what I'm missing. Uh, Let me know what your thoughts are and definitely um, why you do that. Go ahead and leave us that five-star review and thumbs up and whatever, whatever your podcast streaming app allows you to do because that goes a very long way. Jeff, we are about to get out of here. And is there anything else that we need to mention or boost for folks before we head on into the second week of May. You know me, Manuel. I've always got
1: a million things I could say about stuff, but I've also <laughs> said a lot today. So I think I'm done now, Manuel. And you have a very important message, more important than uh, than I would have to say right now, uh, from from one of our uh sponsors and uh endorsers of the show uh the good folks at the human restoration project uh tell tell us all about that manuel
0: yeah folks so like last week if if you listen to last week's episode we mentioned that um former guests of the show Chris McNutt and Nick Covington are uh, of the Human Restoration Project are putting on their second virtual conference this summer uh really dope lineup of guests including former AOTA or really dope lineup of of speakers including former AOTA guests and Definite AOTA family member and edu- EduColor executive director and founder and all that. Uh, Jose Filson will be there as well. And um, this this conference, actually, we have a code for you if you are interested in attending the conference. First of all, you should look into the conference because we just had that conversation just now. Um well, both conversations that we just had this this episode. And there's a lot of work to be done in trying to build a more humanizing school system for all. And the Human Restoration Project definitely um, has done a lot of work and is continuing to do a lot of work in making that, um, that dream possible and making that dream become reality. So this conference is something you should definitely look into. The website is humanrestorationproject.org. Slash conference, And if you decide that you are down to attend this conference, which is in July, the end of July, the July uh, 27th, when you check out, you can enter the code AOTA. The code AOTA. Enter that at checkout and you get $25 off your ticket and... There's also additional discounts if you are a member of the trans community or Asian American Pacific Islander or black indigenous person of color or disabled. They got all kinds of discounts there that like stack upon each other. So shout out to them for doing that. I think that's pretty dope. But definitely uh, check out their conference, humanrestorationproject.org slash conference. Enter the code AOTA. And also check out the other discounts that they have available. And if you, after all that, decide you still need a um, scholarship for this, that makes sense, especially for, for folks um, at this very trying time in our economy, there are scholarship opportunities available. Um, so you can find out more about that on the website as well. So humanrestorationproject.org slash conference. Enter the code AOT. TA for 25 bucks off, and then check out their additional discounts and scholarship opportunities so that you could attend that virtual conference, which is at the end of July. Get your learn on. All right, Jeff, it's been a great passing period. I believe this marks episode 99 or 199 in total if you add up our virtual episodes and our passing periods something like that somewhere around 200 and we got some super dope guests lined up which will take us across that um 200 mark so folks make sure you followed and subscribed if you haven't done that already okay thanks for hanging out with us all the way to the end of the episode we really do hope you have a fantastic week just remember we love y'all And now it's time for you to go ahead and get to class